Welcome to A Feminist in Progress, the podcast that's been opening books to retell the stories of the journalists who broke the news that helped usher the Me Too movement as we know it today. In this episode, we're officially diving into the memoir She Said, co-authored by New York Times journalists Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi. For this episode, we're looking at the first two chapters of the book, in which we're with Cantor and Tuhi at the beginning of their investigative journalism pursuit of various women's stories of abuse and harassment at the hands of Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. A quick content warning before we begin. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault, so please take care of yourselves while listening. We begin in a similar place we found ourselves in with Catch and Kill, with a tweet. That tweet, if you will recall, came from actress Rose McGowan, who wrote, and I quote, Because it's been an open secret in Hollywood slash media, and they shamed me while adulating my rapist. Hashtag why women don't report. End quote. I also mentioned in the Catch and Kill miniseries that this tweet allegedly referred to Harvey Weinstein. At the time, the New York Times wanted to have a conversation with McGowan as part of their investigation of sexism in Hollywood. But McGowan was not keen on participating, saying, the NYT needs to look at itself for sexism issues. I'm not that inclined to help. Weinstein may not have been the biggest name in the game at the moment, but his name was synonymous with the power to make and boost careers. Yet, as McGowan alluded to, his treatment of women has long been an open secret. So much so that comedian Seth MacFarlane said at the 2013 Oscar nomination announcements, and this is actually something you can find on the internet, so what he said was, Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. Cue the laughter that filled the room at the time. You know, the kind of laughter that one makes in an uncomfortable situation. Yet, if you try to look at it now, the moment elicits nothing but cringe. So, why Weinstein? Well, according to Cantor and Tuhi, and this is what they wrote, quote, In public, Weinstein boasted feminist credentials. He had just given a large donation to help endow a professorship in Gloria Steinem's name. His company had distributed The Hunting Ground, a documentary and rallying cry about campus sexual assault. He had even participated in the historic women's marches of January 2017, joining the pink pussyhat throngs in Park City, Utah, during the Sundance Film Festival. End quote. Is it even possible that Rose McGowan was not referring to feminist icon Harvey Weinstein? So the investigative journalist in pursuit of the story, it was off to a tricky start. But Jody Cantor is actually no stranger to investigating women's experiences at corporations and other institutions since she's been writing about such stories since 2013. In the book, they write that in doing these stories, Jody found that gender was not just a topic, but a kind of investigative entry point. 
because women were still outsiders at many organizations, documenting what they experienced meant seeing how power functioned. After presenting McGowan with her previous investigative work on women's experiences in the workplace, Jody had established her credibility with McGowan well enough to get the actress to do an interview with them. McGowan said the alleged rape happened in 1997 during the Sundance Film Festival. In the 90s and early 2000s, I admit that I do remember McGowan in films like Jawbreaker. I remember her iconically in that one. Also in Scream, a weird movie called Monkey Bone, and of course the TV series Charmed. And I must also admit that I remember her for her hypersexualized image. Even this iconic look of hers at a, 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 an MTV award show, if I'm not mistaken. And she wore something that, to say the least, was provocative. And the fact that at the time, her romantic partner was feminist icon Marilyn Manson. Oh, man. It doesn't help that when I prepared this episode, I, me writing in parenthesis that Marilyn Manson was another problematic figure is an understatement because by the time I'm recording this episode now, it's been about a couple of weeks since I watched the HBO documentary Phoenix Rising. So that's where you really get to see what a fucking problematic figure Marilyn Manson is. But anyway, anyway, I don't want to, I, I would probably want to talk about Phoenix Rising in a separate episode. But for now, what I'm really trying to get at is that I remember the early 90s, no, not the early 90s, the, the late 90s and the early 2000s as the time when McGowan was at the height of her acting career. And apparently, this was also the time when the alleged assault happened. So you could see her as a promising young woman figure of sorts. And while it may be the case that she does not recall the when, specifically of the story, she does remember the sequence of events. She was at a screening of the film Going All the Way, where she sat near Weinstein. Afterward, Weinstein had asked for a meeting with her, which they held in his hotel room, where nothing had happened during the meeting itself except talking about films and roles. But on her way out, Cantor and Tuhi write, quote, Weinstein pulled her into a room with a hot tub, stripped her on the edge, and forced his face between her legs, end quote. So here, we see the pattern in Weinstein's predatory behavior that we also saw in Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill. McGowan describes having a freeze response in that traumatic situation. In fact, she told Joni Cantor, quote, I was just feeling massive shock. I was going into survival mode. End quote. 
And she also described how she had to fake an orgasm just to get out of that situation. So Cantor and he also writes that McGowan, after the assault, received a message from Weinstein about how other big big female stars were his special friends and she could join his club as well. They write, McGowan had complained to her managers, hired a lawyer, and ended up with a $100,000 settlement from Weinstein. Essentially, a payment to make the matter go away without any admission of wrongdoing on his part, which she said she had donated to a rape crisis center. And as I said in the Catch and Kill miniseries, Weinstein was able to do what he did to women because there were people who were complicit in his abuse. Not necessarily because, oh, they they want Weinstein to continue his predatory behavior, but no, it, it was more because Weinstein is in a was in a position where he can exercise power over his people so that they can allow him to carry on like nothing. Again, I must emphasize that this issue is not just about one man's transgressions. In fact, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi write. Hollywood was an organized system for abusing women. It lured them with promises of fame, turned them into highly profitable products, treated their bodies as property, required them to look perfect, and then discarded them. The way McGowan put it, it's an entire machine, supply chain, with no oversight, no fear. Her story was compelling, but of course, it needed to stand up to the rigors of the journalistic process, given the subject matter. Three years prior to this journalistic investigation, Rolling Stone magazine actually published a report about an alleged group sexual assault at the University of Virginia without sufficient evidence. It's actually something we'll go back to for our miniseries on Trick Mirror, which is Gia Tolentino's 2019 collection of essays. So how would Jody Cantor approach this story? It can't be as simple as, oh, you know, fact-checking McGowan's story. Then, based on journalistic standard operating procedure, you would be, you would, you know, give Weinstein the opportunity to respond, and then you publish both sides of the story. It cannot be a mere he-said-she-said dispute where the allegations will just be met with denial. It will just end up in the court of public opinion. But McGowan did say she had gotten a settlement, so money was involved. As the journalist put it, and I quote, it wouldn't prove what had happened in the hotel room, but it could add support by showing that Weinstein had paid McGowan a significant sum at the time to settle a dispute, end quote. The question now is, did other women have similar stories about him? The story had so many moving parts and factors to consider that Times editor Rebecca Corbett suggested to Jody to contact a colleague, Megan Tuhi, to help with the story. 
Tuhi had been relatively new at the New York Times, but she had experience covering politics and uncovering sex crimes and sexual misconduct. Now, the book goes on to describe other news stories that were broken that focused on prominent men and their sexual misconduct, ranging from Donald Trump to right-wing television host Bill O'Reilly. There have been prior journalistic investigations into the kind of behavior Weinstein could be engaged in, as McGowan's tweet and story disclosed to Jody would imply. The Bill O'Reilly story opened a door to investigative journalism when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace. Payments given to victims in order to purchase their silence. So these settlements were a tale of cover-up that illuminated the alleged wrongdoing. The O'Reilly story offered a playbook, according to Cantor and Tuhi. Almost no one ever came forward completely on their own. But if patterns of bad behavior could be revealed, there might be a way to tell more of these stories, end quote. With that playbook, various journalists at the outlet uncovered such patterns of abuse in different industries, ranging from the tech industry to academia. Now, with Cantor and Tuhi teamed up, it was time to pursue the story and look into the patterns of sexual misconduct in Hollywood. But getting actresses with enough social cachet to go on the record is not an easy feat. One of the first actresses that the journalists were able to reach was Marisa Tomei, whom a former Miramax employee had said Weinstein harassed and upset so much that she had cried at work. Cantor and Tuhi write, quote, Tomei had a theory. Actresses and the public were stuck in a cycle of mutual misperception. From very young ages, girls were taught to admire and model themselves on the fantasy of women on screen. That made many of them want to become actresses themselves. The lucky ones who made it could never really describe the harassment or the punishing physical standards. That would be self-sabotage. So the cycle continued, with the next generation of girls growing up with Hollywood dreams and little understanding that the industry could mistreat them too. End quote. Jody would eventually reach out to other actresses, most of whom agree that Hollywood was plagued by rampant sexism. But even with all these women having stories worth telling, Jody found herself in a situation where potential sources were backing out. But one actress, Ashley Judd, shared her story to the journalists about a time when Weinstein sexually harassed her in his hotel room. Cantor and Tuhi write that Judd recalled feeling trapped in the room and fearful of hurting her film prospects. Now, that's part of what made it difficult to bring Weinstein into accountability after all these years. See, he had the ability to wield his power when it comes to these women's careers. Now, a few moves later, with some help from some women in the entertainment industry, another prominent actress wanted to talk to the journalists, namely Gwyneth Paltrow. 
Paltrow is an interesting figure in the investigation, given that she had once been nicknamed First Lady of Miramax. She had a close relationship with Weinstein, almost like a father-daughter type. She won an Oscar for Best Actress for her role in Shakespeare in Love, a movie produced and campaigned for by Weinstein himself. Even so, she had a story that was similar to Ashley Judd's. Paltrow and Weinstein had a meeting in the same hotel, actually, as the one that Ashley Judd mentions in her story. Similarly, there was talk of business, and then Weinstein, quote, closed by placing his hands on her and asking to go into the bedroom and exchange massages, end quote. Paltrow got out without saying anything worse happening, and then she disclosed what happened to her to a few friends, family members, and her agent. Her boyfriend at the time, who was actually who's also a, a prominent, famous actor. So he confronted Weinstein, who then threatened Paltrow in an I'm going to ruin your career kind of way. Paltrow told Jody that the ethos of Hollywood was to swallow complaints and put up with exactly that kind of behavior. Yet, she was a long way from wanting to go on the record marred as she was in a bad PR moment. She feared that her involvement would sensationalize the story instead of focusing on the grave situation at hand. More potential sources were joining Cantor into his list. The pattern that was emerging consists of hotel room meetings and some form of sexual misconduct that left the women distraught. Yet, for the journalists, the story was not just about getting the women on the record to disclose their stories, or else the news that they have would merely be a he-said-she-said story that would be at risk of being sensationalized. So this Weinstein story had to be broken with evidence. That means on-the-record accounts, along with overwhelming force of written, legal, and financial proof.